it's, it's kind of a good sober thing of it's not about just acquiring customers at every cost. We've got to acquire them in a cost efficient way because at the end of the day, they have to pay for themselves as a group or as a cohort. Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer from Open Music Expansion Team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks. Today's episode is all about CAC payback how to measure it, mistakes to avoid, and tips to efficiently acquire customers. I'm joined by Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView, who will share how to calculate CAC payback and how you can apply a product-led growth strategy to drive down customer acquisition costs. Then I'll speak with seasoned SaaS founder Mark Morin from Avic Networks, who will share his perspective on how to sustain efficient growth as you scale. Blake, thank you for joining Bill. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about CAC payback, essentially how companies can efficiently land new customers. Before we start, though, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Blake Bartlett. I'm a partner here at OpenView, focused on investing in application software companies, have led our investments in companies like Calendly, Expensify, Logical, and a few others as well. Let's start at the highest possible level. What is CAC payback and why is it worth measuring? Yeah, so CAC payback, I mean, it stands for customer acquisition cost. And really the goal of this and why this is a metric that folks focus on is because it measures the efficiency of your go-to-market engine or of your sales and marketing investment. And so customer acquisition costs, you need to calculate that. How much does it cost to acquire a customer or how much are we spending in a certain period of time, whether it's a month or a quarter, you know, on our go-to-market efforts. But then what's the, the ROI of that investment? If I'm spending sales and marketing dollars, how much am I getting for it? And then how long does it take for me to break even in terms of a number of months on that sales and marketing investment? And then what's it worth over time from an ROI standpoint? And, you know, I've heard many companies have different approaches for calculating CAC payback. There's quick and dirty options. There's really exhaustive options. How do you like to calculate CAC payback? What advice do you have for others? As with all SaaS metrics, there are many ways to, uh, to skin the cat. And you'll search online, you'll find lots of different approaches, lots of different nuances. I think at the highest level, there is some commonality around either the the idea of a CAC ratio, which effectively measures how many months does it take for me to reach that sort of break-even point on my sales and marketing dollar investment. And the CAC ratio usually takes gross margin into the equation because when you're selling a dollar of revenue, there is a cost to delivering that dollar of revenue from a hosting standpoint, from a support standpoint, and things like that. So a lot of folks want to take that gross profit sort of calculation into consideration when they're doing the measure. But there are some other measurements that you know focus on just error acquired compared against sales and marketing dollars invested, which would be more of a sales efficiency measure like a magic number or something like that. And those are good. I, I think that those kind of quick and dirty rule of thumb type measures give you an initial pass at where you stand today. And they're also helpful in the sense that it helps you compare against and benchmark you know, against other peers out there in the industry. You can certainly look at a SAS metrics study and, and see kind of how do you stack up against everyone that was a survey respondent. But you can also you know, kind of do it yourself by using some of those high-level 
calculations, you can look at the financials from a public company and pick the exact competitive set that you really value and look at it over time and say, how efficient were they back uh, when they were uh, more similar to my size, right? So there are some benefits to these initial calculations. But, you know, I I think that uh, as with any high level metric and as with any quick and dirty analysis, it's helpful as a rule of thumb, but it's not the end all be all on its own. And, you know, you're talking to dozens and dozens of companies and investigating, you know, them from an investment standpoint, is there a magic number for CAC payback that you're looking for that companies should be aiming for? Well, lower is better (laughs) in general. The faster the payback, the more efficient the engine the better. That's always great. And if you look online, again, you'll find that most sort of common knowledge points to 12 months as being the sort of bright line. Uh, If you pay back your customer acquisition cost in less than 12 months, uh, you're considered efficient. If you pay back your customer acquisition cost probably between 12 and 18 months, you're considered sort of standard and passable. And then if you pay back your customer acquisition cost in more than 18 months or more than 24 months, then you're considered inefficient. So there are some rules of thumb out there. And I think those are helpful. But, you know, I do also believe that there is, you know, some apples to oranges comparisons that happen when you just look at a single metric like that. It doesn't take into consideration sort of what is the trend over time for my company, uh, because I'm just doing a snapshot and point in time right now. And then what are the things that affect my payback period? There might be using that quick and dirty analysis. It might look like I'm getting more inefficient, but, you know, if I dig below the surface, I actually understand that I went on a hiring spree. And so, you know, just using those basic math calculations in a CAC ratio analysis doesn't take some of those more nuanced considerations into effect. And there are also other things like if you have a field sales model with expensive sales reps that have a long ramp time because you're selling into the enterprise, that will just naturally have a different sort of characteristic on how quickly those resources ramp and those investments sort of ramp relative to something that's more of a sort of online driven product led growth freemium sales model, right? And so there there are some nuances that you have to appreciate and take into consideration after taking a look at that initial first pass analysis with an industry standard metric. Let's talk more about this kind of more traditional sales model and, and companies that, that adopt that model. There seem to be two factors working against their CAC payback. First is that as they grow, they need to hire a lot of expensive field sales people. And then once they hire these people, it actually might take 6 to 12 months before they're fully ramped. Does CAC payback still matter in these cases? And how do you measure it for these growing companies? Yeah, so CAC payback period does definitely matter. But I think it requires some additional sort of double clicking into the calculation in order to appreciate the nuance of what you just described with a ramping sales team. So you can start with one of those high level metrics just to get a baseline, right? And, and to be able to compare against your peers. So whether that's the, you know, the, the CAC ratio or it's a magic number, I think that's a helpful way to begin. But in order to get a more accurate read, you do have that dynamic that you just mentioned, Kyle, which is you know, you're constantly adding new sales resources. And especially if you're talking about at the most extreme, say field sales resources that are outside sales folks selling into large enterprise. So very big deals with very long sales cycles. That's a type of individual and that's a type of situation where you might be paying 250K to 300K of OTE in terms of compensation and seeing a ramp time of maybe six months at the fastest for true enterprise and maybe even up to 12 months to ramp to productivity for a true enterprise sale. And so if you're hiring a number of those folks, it really takes a while. It might take six to 12 months before you start to see an impact of that. 
And so you might look at a quick analysis and say, well, the, the CAC payback period is increasing or the efficiency is going down. So therefore, something's wrong with this business. But in reality, something was going right with the business. Uh, things were going really well. So you decided to aggressively ramp up the sales team. And that's not really accurately reflected in that quick sort of magic number analysis or CAC ratio analysis. So double clicking into it by looking at more of a productive rep sort of efficiency calculation that only takes your ramped reps into the equation, I think is a helpful way to get a more nuanced view when you do have expensive sales resources that you're hiring and you're hiring them quickly. Got it. So for startups out there that are growing quickly with this traditional sales model, if CAC payback is increasing, they need to really find out why that is and if it's just natural because of hiring or if there's really something broken with the business. Exactly. And, you know, I'm curious about the other kind of on the flip side of this, companies that take more of a low cost go to market strategy approach. So companies that are self-service or you know, sell more through e-commerce, our product led, these companies may not even need to spend money on sales and marketing because the product sort of sells itself. Could you talk more about this phenomenon and, and what companies have mastered it? Yeah, definitely. So product-led growth, it's a model where you rely first and foremost on the product itself to acquire users, convert users, and then drive expansion in users or in accounts. And now this is a sort of very similar to and oftentimes have a, has a lot of overlap with businesses that have a freemium strategy from a pricing standpoint and that have self-serve components in terms of how they've designed the product and oftentimes have a low, based on that freemium strategy, have a low entry price uh, where you can pay a very small amount once you first convert and you can kind of expand from there. It has often been equated to, well, that's just the freemium strategy or that's just the bottoms up strategy. But what we've seen is that that doesn't do it justice to explain it merely as a freemium pricing model. There really is something different in these organizations. You know, whether you think about emblematic examples uh, in recent years and in current time periods like Slack or like Trello, or in our portfolio, Expensify, Calendly, Datadog. Once we started to understand the, what, what's really at the core of these businesses, it really was about the DNA of the businesses themselves. When you are charged with that idea of, we got to go acquire more users, we got to go acquire more revenue, what's the default knee-jerk reaction? Is it, well, we got to go hire salespeople, or we got to ramp up our content marketing, or our paid media? Well, then you probably have a sales and marketing-driven model. But uh, on the other hand, if the initial response and the default answer is, well, what can we do in the product? What can we do to drive more virality in the product? What can we do to sort of perhaps increase conversion by changing the paywall or figuring out what pricing or what features go into what pricing and packaging tiers? If you have that orientation and that's the default answer, chances are you might be in that product-like growth category. So that's what we think about when we think about product-like growth. Got it. And what are some of the strategies? I know you mentioned some of them like freemium models, but like, what are some of the, the most common strategies you've seen from these kinds of companies in terms of getting the right customers and, and growing efficiently? So I would say one of the dynamics that really plays out in product-like growth that can be also designed into a product is virality. And so when there's inherent virality in a product, it really is the fuel and the driver of product-like growth. And there are certain products and certain use cases that are just inherently viral because it's a problem that sort of always includes a second person or a, or a group of people. So Calendly would be a perfect example of that. Or uh, a screen sharing service like a Join Me or a Zoom would be a perfect example of that as well. So super um, boring products if you just use them on your own. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If you're having a screen share on Zoom or on Join Me, 
and there's not somebody on the other side, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> Similarly with Calendly, if you have a Calendly link in order to more efficiently uh, schedule meetings, there is no single player mode of Calendly. The only reason you use it is to share it out with somebody else so that you can more efficiently schedule that meeting. So there's inherent virality built in. And if you have a, a product or a use case that has an inherent virality, recognize it and take advantage of it. And there's the obvious examples like we just mentioned, you know, with a, a Calendly or with a Join Me or a Zoom. But there's even other examples. If I look at companies that I work with, Logical is a great example, which is a legal tech business, specifically focused on e-discovery, which doesn't immediately jump out as being emblematic of collaboration or emblematic of virality. But when you think about it, you go through e-discovery when there's a lawsuit or when there's litigation. And litigation in a lawsuit has two parties, or sometimes it even has more than two parties. But there's never a single party uh, lawsuit that takes place. And so um, Logical's recognize that, yes, their product is primarily sold to one side of the equation, but once you get that data ready for the evidence ready through the e-discovery process to share with the other side of the litigation, that actually is inherent virality. That's inherent collaboration that needs to happen. Even if there's an adversarial dynamic that takes place with two sides of a litigation, there still are two sides to the equation. And so they've thought a lot about how can we um, leverage that inherent virality in a litigation in order to drive product-led growth in our business. And so my point there is saying that, yes, there are products that are obvious, no-brainer, out-of-the-gates collaborative, and certainly throw as much fuel on that viral fire as you possibly can. But there's also, for many, many products, whether it's through collaboration or two different sides of an equation or of a transaction that has virality that's not immediately appreciated by everyone, recognize that and take advantage of it where it does exist. Yeah, and like on the topic of virality, so some companies might say, you know, that sounds great, but my product, you know, really has to stay within the, the four walls of, of a customer and, you know, the sensitive data or something around about it that, you know, you can't share it with others outside of the company. But can there be virality with inside of a company or like what what companies have you seen that master this? There definitely can be. And I think Slack is a perfect example of that. Slack has grown incredibly well and has really kind of become an industry standard in many ways for internal communication. But, you know, Slack really is primarily used inside your organization. Now, some people are are increasingly using Slack with external Slack channels, say for customers or for support or for partners or perhaps for communities if you belong to, you know, say a similar, if you're working on a similar open source project. So there are some external use cases, but you still have to be invited into that channel. And it's not sort of open free for all collaboration like there is with, with other solutions that kind of have open architecture, if you will, from a product standpoint. But with Slack, obviously they've grown very efficiently through a product-led growth model because of that internal virality. One team or one office inside an organization starts using Slack and then stops using email, and then it kind of spreads virally with inside that organization. So it is possible, indeed, even if you have high security requirements for something to be used internally, there still is an opportunity for internal collaboration and internal virality. It sounds like you're targeting at the user that then might spread the product throughout an organization as opposed to targeting top-down and only the buyer. Exactly. Blake, thanks so much for joining us and talking about CAC payback and, and efficiency with go-to-market. Appreciate having you on. Thanks for having me, Kyle. We had some great takeaways from Blake. Next, we get to hear from Mark Morin, founder and CEO of Avic Networks, about how they use experimentation and testing to efficiently acquire new customers. 
Mark, thanks so much for joining the OpenView Build Podcast. We're excited to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. To kick things off, could you introduce yourself and Avic to listeners? My name is Mark Morin. I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Avic Networks. We are a SaaS platform that develops a cloud-based network management platform for IT-managed service providers. So think of it as you're well, you're managing your on-prem Wi-Fi network and all the, uh, the networking that's on-premise the office is managed by an external IT team. They would use Avic to do a really good job there. And you know, you've been a seasoned operator co-founding Sandvine in 2001 and Pickstream in 1996. How did you get started in the software world? I think like most, I really loved software back in the day, you know, in high school, those kind of things, and, and went to university. I decided to go, you know, into a career in software development and, and did that and, and went to went to school here at UW in Waterloo and never left town. Early on, you know, I'd say my first job was with Hewlett Packard in, the, in, in Waterloo here, which was instrumental and foundational in everything that I did in my career. So my follow-on companies in terms of Pickstream, Sandbine, you know, there are large groups of those individuals where we met at, either at school or worked at HP together. So, you know, that first foundational job at HP was pivotal in terms of how we ended up here. And I'm sure yet you've seen big changes in the Waterloo tech ecosystem since you got started in it. Absolutely. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm dating myself here. Yeah, the ecosystem was quite small. And then BlackBerry, you know, came on and, and had a mission to change the world, which was it really transformed the region and then, you know, tripped a little bit and, and transformed it again. So now it's a really, really healthy very diverse ecosystem. A lot of things happening in town, which are really, really, really great. It's great. And today's podcast is focused on CAC payback and how to efficiently land new customers. From your perspective, how important is CAC payback and, and why do you pay attention to it? So I'm an engineer and, you know, my previous companies, I never really paid too much attention to sales. It was always someone else's job. And when we came, we got into the Avic sort of startup, the company it was a SaaS company. You know, we read just about every blog about you know, how do you run a SaaS company? What are the metrics? All those kind of things. And it became very obvious to us, you know, that CAC payback is one of the crucial metrics that, you know, every entrepreneur needs to pay crucial attention to. You know, it's one of those metrics that we take very seriously and one that we view as an input to our business model as opposed to an output. What I mean by that is, you know, the valuations of your company, the health of your business, the fundamentals, the unit economics of whether or not you're actually got something that can scale and is economically long-term going to create maximum value. The CAC payback is one of the crucial sort of components you have to stay on top of. And not only that is the, you know, whether you're B2C or B2B, there's, there's rules of thumb and bands under which, you know, I like to say you want to stay between the rails of those things. So if you're a B2B like ourselves, you, you know, if you can get your CAC payback, under 12 months of expected revenue, that's exactly where expectations are, and it's crucial. So we use, we, we, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's an input to our business model. It's back pressure on our spend. It's like the, the sober limit on exuberance on how quickly you could grow, should grow, whether you should or not. And it, it really, really is an input to the model, which, which you really have to take seriously. Totally. Couldn't agree more. And I'd love to, if we could rewind a couple of years ago when you were first starting to sell the Avic product and, you know, coming from more of an engineering background, how did you think about your initial go-to-market strategy and what that would look like? 
again, we, you know, we just followed the rules, followed what we read on the online in terms of, you know, inside sales, you want a lead gen machine. We, you know, we needed to build the team to be able to execute on that. You know, we're real believers. We're up in Waterloo. It's hard to find some of this talent. So it's like, we got good, smart people. Let's figure it out. You know, it's an engineering problem we can solve. We, you know, so we built an inside team and largely, you know, marketing driven in lead gen and content gen and in our market trade shows play a, dom- a big role as well, but it's all part of the marketing machine to drive qualified leads through our top side of our funnel. And when did you start to monitor the efficiency of that engine that you were building and CAC payback? Like when did that become a big metric that you were tracking? So from day one, it was always a metric that we tracked. But obviously, you know, when you're starting out, you don't have anywhere near scale. So, you know, the numbers are going to be just way out of bounds. And the, the point here is not to, not to hit those numbers early on when you're, when you're still experimenting, but to always keep that in sight that you need to hit those numbers as, and you should start seeing eventually some asymptotic approach, some glide slope there that you're going to hit those numbers because you always want to have the ability that the data is available. You're always measuring it. You're always understanding it. And you're, you're, you're making the trade-off that, yeah, we're going to land on that slope. We're going to land on that CAC payback period, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months, whatever it is, as long as it's an active process. Totally. You can measure improvements over time. You can easily identify something that's out of whack and needs to be corrected. You're kind of, if you don't start measuring it early, it's hard to be constantly improving it. Absolutely. It's, it's about exercising those muscles, right? And getting used to it and, and just drilling it into the entire way that the company operates, that this is something that we're looking at or measuring. It's important. And, and we can't do things that are going to blow that out of whack, which is really, it's, it's kind of a good sober thing of it's not about just acquiring customers at every cost. We've got to acquire them in a cost efficient way, because at the end of the day, they have to pay for themselves as a group or as a cohort. And we saw in our benchmarking survey this year that many startups are efficient with their customer acquisition early on, but then get less efficient as they grow and expand their teams, onboard a whole bunch of new sales hires. How at Avic have you remained so efficient as you've scaled? I think we've remained relatively efficient is the right way. You know, we've, we've, we've suffered from some, some of those sins. I wouldn't call them sins, but you know, as you go through different phases of scaling up different parts of your organization, it's going to impact your CAC payback period until you've absorbed that expansion a little bit. But I think generally, you know, people say as you start moving from the early adopters to the you know early majority, the late majority, it gets harder and harder on one regard to reach those individuals. So their costs could go up, but, you know, your awareness in the market goes up, so your costs could go down. So... It's clearly something you want to keep on top of and understand why it's happening and whether or not you're doing it on purpose because you're doing an investment, you're expanding in a geography, you're doing whatever. That's great. That's an investment versus it's happening to you because of competition or whatever. You have to really be careful and understand why that metric is eroding. And if it is eroding you know, because it's happening to you by some other external factor, you really want to try and understand why that's happening and possibly correct it. Right. And I think the key insight I always take away from, from your experience is a constant you know, monitoring and measurement really allows you to diagnose any issues and get on the right track very quickly so that if you start noticing trends going you know, one way or the other, you can course correct. 
Yeah, like one of the little things that we do, and, and, we, and it's not necessarily repeatable with all businesses, but our sales cycle is relatively short. It's like 42 to 45 days. So we, you know, we measure everything in our business by the week. So we have, you know, weekly targets for, you know, content visitors, you know, meetings booked, trials booked, MRR, deals closed by the week. So the cadence of the business is by the week. And, and what, what that really, really is good about is it provides, you know, as opposed to monthly, let's say, is you end up with four times as many data points. You can experiment four times faster because <laughs> you can do experimentations, experiments for one week and it doesn't feel so all committing because you can try something. I'm going to double my spend. I'm going to try this thing for a week and see how it, how it happens. So, you know, my takeaway there is, you know, it's all about continuously trying to optimize the machine. The machine is always changing every day. But you have to stay on top of it and continuously sort of tweak the machine. And it'll never be perfect and it's always going to be changing. But you have to commit to always trying to ride the, the maximum curve if you can. That's a great point. And, you know, you talked a bit earlier about the importance of growing talent from within, especially being based in Waterloo, onboarding and developing people that, you know, have you know, potentially the talent but don't have the expertise going in rather than poaching from, say, Silicon Valley. How have you applied that thinking into Avic sales and marketing? You know, that's the approach that, you know, I like to take the stance that there's no rocket science here. This is just, you know, business process. We need smart people that have to learn and not only learn from us, but learn from others. And there's a lot of data online, a lot of blog posts on how to properly, you know, what's the go-to-market, what's the sales approach, what's the video, all those kind of things. I think, you know, if you really want to scale your company, you're implying that you're going to grow quickly. And you're going to sustain that growth in some way. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have the talent that you need or the people that you need to fill and support that, that growth initiative. Now, I look at it as, well, if you either need the skill of poaching other people or you, get, you, you build the skill of being able to build people from the raw materials. For me, that's the preferred, more durable approach because it's in your control. Once you master the ability of being really good at onboarding people, that aren't necessarily pre-qualified with, you know, two years, three years experience doing exactly that, you're actually in a better spot because then you can grow at your own pace because your life is in your destiny. And also as you get better and you start getting scale, you know, you become the target for people to poach away from you. And, you know, to a certain degree, if you have the skills of onboarding people, yeah, a bit of, you know, undesired churn happens and you're a play base, but you can, you're a little bit better in a better position to, to deal with it when it happens if you if you know how to onboard people efficiently. So to me, that's a crucial skill. You know, just being able to go down you know the Silicon Valley approach, which is really you know walk down the shopping aisle. You know, I'll take one of these BDRs, I'll take one of these reps, I'll take one of those, and not really train them. They they work for eighteen months, and then they move on. You know, that may work there, but it just doesn't work in Waterloo at all. We have really good people, but the, the depth is not there. But that doesn't. That, that, that's not a downside. It just means you have to change your game plan. Totally, and it's it's almost an advantage building that capacity internally and building that early on, because if you get too reliant on poaching, there's a lot of risks of as soon as there's another hot company that comes in, you don't really have a whole lot that's holding employees to your business, and they're just going to jump ship to the next hot tech company in town. But, but, but also when that happens, because it happens, right? When it happens to you, if your success in growth and your growth strategy relied on 
poaching other teams, that could become very difficult. And therefore that becomes, uh, you know, a key success factor that's less in your control. And you don't want to be able to do that. You want to be able to grab the key success factors you need and have good controls over them. So for me, it's, it seems like, yeah, you know, you always have to hire from, from outside and hire expertise. That's great, but, but not in every role and, and certainly not in every dominant role. And, you know, you guys have been very successful, but are there any missteps that you've had along the way that you think others might run into? Of course. <laughs> That's never a straight line, right? You know, I would say, you know, the lesson is, you know, the product, the market is, you know, it's a journey. It's never a straight shot to what you think it's going to be. So that's why, you know, you, it's a, a continuous revision of the product market fit, the, uh, the concept of the theory of the market, the theory of what the, the market, the, the problem you're trying to solve, the competitive environment. You really want to keep rolling with it as quickly as possible. And fundamentally, you want to re- react faster than everyone else. And that's, you know, if the basis of you winning is you've got a really good product and an awesome product and you can react faster than everyone else. You know, that's, that's a sustainable sort of position to be in versus not. So, you know, for us, again, that's why the weekly cadence, all that is designed so that we react quickly. So in terms of advice for other startups looking to become more efficient in how they acquire new customers. So obviously, tip number one, start looking at data more regularly and on a weekly cadence instead of monthly so you can react faster. Any other final advice you have for others? Experiment again with. You know, because again, it's you never know what's going to work. And we've got lots of examples of that where we thought, you know, back when we started, we thought, oh, our online presence and our online ads would all be in through Google and LinkedIn and Facebook would be useless. It's Facebook is an awesome place for us in terms of lead gen. We, you know, it was against everything that we thought was right. But the point here is just try it. <laughs> you know, if the investments are low enough and, you know, the, the old classic A-B testing, just keep testing. Even though you think it's crazy, it's it's not. And most of the time, it's not worth baiting it. It's just try it, and more often than not, you'll be surprised with what the outcome will be, or what will, what success what will be successful is rarely as obvious as you thought at the beginning. That's great advice. Thanks so much for joining the Open View Build Podcast, Mark. All right, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts, and please give us a five star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Check out the site and please participate in the 2018 benchmarking survey while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.